0: Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, what's going on? Welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you. So fun to be here. So excited to do the Odyssey. Welcome back
2: from Louisville, you guys.
1: Thanks. We missed you, Tim.
2: I missed you guys. I cry every day.
1: Every day. day, I love
2: it. I love it. Like
1: Penelope. (laughs) Oh, nice segue. (laughs) (laughs) It was
0: It was it? No, it, it kind of felt a little forced. It was a
1: little forced. David. And also a lie, but I... Which is (laughs) kind of like Odysseus and Penelope. Except for... Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) we'll get there.
0: (laughs) Except for a lot of things, just to be clear. Right? Um, Okay, so we are here to begin our conversation of The Odyssey by Homer. Homer's The Odyssey. Uh, We're going to be using... The translation that came out a couple of years ago, uh, which was done by Emily Wilson. Uh, if you are not aware, I did interview Emily Wilson um, in December of 2017 about this new translation. I did that for the former podcast. I posted that on the Facebook page and I will be sending that out this week as well in an email. So if you want to get access to that, you can check one of those two sources or you can subscribe to that podcast and find that episode. Uh, I think it's episode seven or eight. And that goes... Like I said, that's back in December of 2017. So wherever you get podcasts, you can find that. If you want to join the conversation, you can head over to the Facebook group, search for Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group, and you can uh, can join the conversation. Uh, We will be discussing books one and two this week. So I'm sure that there will be a lively discussion about those two books. the books within the book, uh, on the Facebook page. Uh, also, you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can contact us via email at podcast at gmail.com. If you want to get that newsletter, you can go to um, the URL, reads.substack.com. That's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. Or you can find it on, on CloseReadspods.com or over on the Facebook group. There's lots of different ways you can get in touch with us and be connected. But we, as I said, are going to dive into... The Odyssey by Homer. But um, first, just because I think our listeners would like to get a little visual as we begin this conversation. This is a book about movement or the desire for movement, right? So I'm curious, just you know, for the sake of vis- visual, do you guys record this podcast sitting or standing? How do you do it sitting, right?
1: Yes, but I... Only because...
0: You're tethered. I... I am computer.
1: to Calypso's computer. I am longing for a homecoming. I do prefer to pace, but and alas,
2: <laughs> alas, and, and alas, and alack, Tim. What do you do? You use your phone, right? I use my phone, and I like at the moment I'm sitting. But I, once we get into it, I will be pacing. It's. I find it very difficult to hold still when I get excited and I'm having a conversation. My when I. You know, still live with my parents back in the day. I would get on the phone with someone, and last week, (laughs) and you know, we had a cordless phone, and we have in our our kitchen kind of like there's a door that leads to this little hallway where there's a guest room, and then it goes through the foyer, the living room, and then back into the kitchen. So it's kind of a loop. And my mom would see me kind of get on the phone with my buddy Todd or somebody else, in which I would have a really animated conversation. And she would shout out to Todd. Todd does listen to the show. He's oh, very a, complimentary. Definitely shout out to Todd then. Um, <laughs> so, my mom would just open the doors for, to this little loop because she, so I could start like making this loop that I would make through the kitchen, through the foyer, <laughs> through the living room. And I would just like pace, I would just like make these laps. And she used to tease me mercilessly about it. She still does, does kind of tease me. It's hard for me to hold still.
0: So, Tim, this is how I imagine it going during the podcast like yeah you are i imagine you're going through the rooms you're, you're like practicing your crossover dribble you're doing some spin moves through the doorways maybe you get to the doorframe and you're doing a little windmill dunks i imagine you're that's, basically basically playing basketball uh one-on-one with someone who isn't there while you're listening to heidi
2: talk that's this is that's that's basically it because it helps me listen to heidi talk honestly if
1: i'm like <laughs> everybody needs help physically that. engaged <laughs> What did you you say, Heidi? I said everybody needs help with that. (laughs) No, you're easy to listen to, but I just like I
2: know (laughs) that. Just I I think I'm a is it a kinetic learner? Like you learn by experience, and so I think like physical movement of for me is very helpful. Why? Like, sorry, I'm like this is not the avenue that we wanted to go down on the discussion (laughs) of one of the like top what. Three books of the Western Canon of ever: Yeah, so, <laughs> of ever.
0: <laughs> so I kind of was joking about asking the question, but also it really is a book about you know you both made jokes about movement and homecoming and things like that, and that's, that is what this book is about. and uh, one of the reasons what, what the question of why we um, chose Emily Wilson's translation, and I was thinking about exactly why that is that that I suggested that. I think probably because it's been it's kind of a hot translation, right? There's been a lot of talk about it. Um, She has been very Emily Wilson. That is has been very uh, active online, kind of discussing the choices that she made. She's an interesting Twitter follow. So if you if you want to see some threads about her explaining why she chose a certain word or a phrase or why she altered something that other translators did, you know, there's lots of great conversation about that 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 she's been been participating in. Um, But also, it's a very sort of Contemporary translation, but not in a way that that dumbs it down, um, and I think that, that will make it um, make it and make it interesting to read. So, but I was curious before we dive into this specific translation if either of you have um, a favorite or or a translation you have long turned to as your kind of go to translation. Tim, where do you stand on that?
2: Lattimore is the translation that I've used. Uh, I think in every. Every time that I have taught the Odyssey, it's been from Lattimore. And I've like dipped into other translations, like Samuel Barber's translation, which uses the old Roman um, translation. So it's Ulysses instead of Odysseus. Mm. So I've dipped my toe into other translations, but my go-to is Lattimore. Why Lattimore? Honestly, it's because it was the translation that we used at Gutenberg. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so all of our students were on that page. And I didn't yeah. have a reason. I didn't. Every once in a while, I, w- I would push us to change the translation at Gutenberg for this reason or that reason. For example, I really liked the Fagels translation of the Aeneid, but we were using, I think, Mendelbaum. And I can't remember if we ended up changing to Fagels or not, but I-, I saw no reason to change from Lattimore. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, what about you?
1: I like Fitzgerald. I think it's very poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, bagels. I also read. I do have a lot of more translation, um, but I haven't. I'm not as familiar with it as Tim is. But I don't speak the original language, so I am going by my preference in English.
2: Sure. Same for me. Yes. Yeah. Same for me.
0: Um, well, one thing that you, you you each have listed between you, I don't know, seven, eight different translations, and names, <laughs> and, and every single one of those people might not realize this, every single one of those was translated by a man. And Emily mm-hmm. Wilson's translation is the first one, at least the first one of of its stature. I mean there were lots of people women who were translating the odyssey but published it to uh, you know at this quality and by by a big house like this uh, by a woman. And that is something that I think is actually um worth keeping an eye on as we like other ways that we're seeing you know, that show up? Um, Are there, what are the differences between what she might be doing? Or I guess the better question is, are there differences, what she is doing and what, um, you know, these other translators are, are doing that maybe is because she's a woman. So those are, are, that's something that's interesting to look at. Um, The Odyssey, as people probably know, but just in case they don't, scholars believe that the Odyssey was composed near the end of the eighth century BC, somewhere in Ionia, which is a coastal region, I believe, of Greece. Can either of you confirm that?
1: Yep, true.
0: And as we all know, or I suspect most people know, this is a book or an epic poem that primarily focuses on Odysseus, the Greek hero. He starts, he's been off at Troy. Um, Obviously, the Odyssey is the up to the Iliad. He's been off fighting uh, the Trojan War at Troy. And the book opens with... Um, his well, it actually, opens with the gods, but it opens essentially with um, his home place. The first four books, often called the Telemachy, are about his son and his wife, um, and he doesn't actually appear until book five. And so, I wanted to kind of begin the, begin our conversation with these first two books there, if that's okay, because I find this and an, maybe the most fascinating thing about this book, personally. So, you know, as the person who gets to start asking questions we'll, we'll start with what i'm interested in i guess um, <laughs> but i just find this so interesting that it's the odyssey right it's a book about odysseus we, mm. that's the character you think of you think it's about his journey you think of the cyclops and the sirens and calypso and and uh cersei and all you know all these different characters right um we think about the things that are tied to odysseus And his cleverness and his cunning and the adventures that he's going through. And maybe we think about Penelope as well. We think about how, um, you know, he's trying to get home to his wife, but he doesn't even show up until book. The main character of this book doesn't show up until book five. And so I'm wondering, I want to talk about that. Um, I've got thoughts on this. I know the two of you have thoughts on this. So I'll just, I'll just put it out there. Um, I was going to ask why that is, but I want to kind of go at it from a different angle. And I'm curious, Heidi, what do you think the effect is on the reader that this is the case? That we don't get Odysseus until book five, that we start with, obviously, like I said, the gods of the first couple hundred um, lines, but then, but then it's essentially about Telemachus for four books. What is the effect of that on the reader? And then we can get into the question of, you know, some other why answers, I suppose.
1: So before I answer that question, you should know that the pacing question is very relevant right now because I think you've put your finger on something so important about this book. And so I'm getting all jittery. (laughs) (laughs) Excited to talk about it. There might be Um, the coffee, Heidi. I wish I could pass. I wish I could pace. Um, So the effect on the reader is some form of impatience right it builds expectation and not just expectation but impatience which is perfect for the odyssey because that is exactly what telemachus and penelope are feeling that's exactly what odysseus is feeling in his state on calypso's island and so it draws the reader in uh, and it could it can also be frustrating for new readers but that is exactly what everybody in the book who matters right now is feeling. Penelope and Telemachus and Odysseus are in dire straits. This is a moment of crisis when the book opens. And so we, as the readers, get drawn in to that, to exactly what they're feeling for our own reasons. I think that's important. Hmm. I I
0: find it really interesting that the, the book... You know, it actually opens with this call to the muses, right? Yes. Tell me about a complicated man, is how Emily Wilson translates that, and we can spend some time talking about her translation of that line if you want. Um, Tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy, and where he went and who he met, the pain he suffered on the sea, and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. He failed, and for their own mistakes, they died. And then he t- the 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 storyteller. Mentions the sun god's cattle, and the gods kept them from home and and then and then the uh the poet says to the muse, Find the beginning and then and then we get the conversation between Athena and Zeus and then we get telemachus so tim is when when the when, he, when the poet asks the muse to find the beginning is the implication then that that that's what's happened is that by not joining Odysseus kind of in media race that the beginning is the gods of the beginning is Telemachus, or how do you, how do you interpret uh, what's going on there with that, with, that, with that call to the muses leading into the story of Telemachus? Because it, that's not the beginning in my mind, you know? <laughs> yeah. It,
2: it, it seems like the beginning, gosh. Okay, I, I think the call to the muses is a call for Homer, the bard, uh, in and he's seeking inspiration from the muse, and not just inspiration. Maybe in the way that like a contemporary American would think of it, like let me find um, the well of encouragement from within myself. I think he's thinking that an actual deity. He, his hope is that it will come visit him in the process of writing and help him determine. Where his tale begins, what things go in, what things not go in, when his tale concludes. It it seems to me, I wonder if you guys agree, if, if a lesser poet was writing the Odyssey, they might begin with the conclusion of the Trojan War, since it's kind of just always in the background of this story. But he... Homer begins 10 years after the close of the Trojan War. And he begins when kind of the gods begin to move rather than... So so it's, it's a tale that is at least greatly shaped by the action of the gods. And I hope that during an early podcast, we can talk about what the relationship between the gods and the world of human beings and the natural world that they inhabit, what that relationship is like. Because coming from 2019 in a culture that's really shaped by monotheism, it's, it's sometimes really confusing to read what Athena and Zeus's power over this world the world of Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad, what their power in that world is. It's probably worth discussing Mm. because it's tempting to just kind of like gloss over the conversations between the gods or the actions of the gods. It's just sort of like this imaginative um, narrative bridge that helps explain some of the action of the book. But I think that's a little bit not taking the world of Homer very seriously. I think they're, they're... it would behoove us, I think, to talk about like what's the theology of the of the Greek pantheon and of the Greek world at this point in history. We don't have to do it now, but I think <laughs> at some point it might be helpful.
0: We could probably do twelve weeks just on on that question itself. I mean, we do get uh, starting in line thirty-two in the Emily Wilson translation. We get this bit where Zeus kind of is defending the gods' honor almost. <laughs> He's basically they're blaming us, but. You know it's their problem, you know and yeah so the 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 way that sort of the nature of the relationship the dynamics if you will of the relationship between the gods and the and and the men uh mankind is is certainly fascinating do you heidi i mean do you think that 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 is the when, when that 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 is the beginning you know he, she says he says the poet says to the muse find the beginning is that what's going on there that the beginning of all of this is the relationship between the gods that that's that that is sort of the um go ahead go ahead the driving force right. i guess is what i was gonna say
1: yeah the gods are present and involved in the lives of men but the gods are i mean it it is important as tim said to understand that we're not talking about kind of a a, a version of the christian god these these gods may be benevolent in the sense that they choose favorites and fight for their favorites, but they're not benevolent in the sense that they want, that they love mankind with any kind of sense of charity and a desire to do good, right? So they get involved, um, but they are self-centered beings. They are like us. They are flawed. They are frail uh, in terms of their emotional stability. They're constantly they're capricious and um and so their involvement in the lives of men is for their own purposes, not for the good of mankind and 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 that's we do need to understand from the beginning that uh, Odysseus has a protector in Athena and he has an enemy in Poseidon, and so that is a huge narrative thread that we must understand that, in, that Zeus is in some sense an arbiter uh, between them. But he, Zeus can be convinced one way or the other to get involved on behalf of Odysseus or against him, not for Odysseus' own good, but in order to, for some kind of purpose of his own. Um, and so that, we do need to understand that about the gods as we head in. But what's interesting about the Odyssey is, is that it is a very fundamentally human story. Like we're talking about the hearts of men and, and women here and um and so that that that's where I think a lot of our attention is going to be focused.
0: It's interesting because Tim's talking about the concept of theology, mm-hmm. and then you're mentioning the idea of being in the hearts of men, and um do you, was Greek theology tied to well, Tim, I'll let you touch on this for a second since you mentioned it, yeah <clears throat> I, I mean is there a common did the greeks believe in the idea of 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 an actual relationship between the gods and the men and men i mean in other words was heidi mentions the hearts of men and these men and women um was there an interaction they believed between the hearts of men and women and, and the gods you know we talk about for example god being in our hearts you know uh, yeah being a driving force within our within our hearts and souls. I mean, was that something that the Greek Greek theology touched on that they felt like there was there was something kind of driving their consciences from the God uh, in terms of a relationship with the god and and was an act of uh,
2: being in in relationship with them? boy, it's a hard I kind of like propose this as a subject to discuss, and <laughs> I have to admit from the outset it's exceptionally complicated, I think, because I think that the Greek myths are stories first and organized theologies second. In other words, let's compare it to Christian theology. Christian theology in some ways is the same. The the story of the gospel comes first. And then with the church fathers and the early medieval fathers all the way up to the present, reflection about God's nature, God's relationship with human beings, there's 2,000 years of of um, conversation among great theologians about what exactly God's nature is, what human nature is, what the relationship between God and nature and God and man is. Um, and I don't... That is not a central preoccupation of the Greeks. The Greeks, at this point, up until I think the classical era in Athens, which is the time of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, etc., the Greeks are not obsessing with getting down a really neat organized theology. So what we have to go with is, like, the actions of the gods in these titanic stories of the Odyssey and the Iliad. So what I'm going to say is based on—I'm acknowledging it's not a neat theological package that's been handed to us. What I understand, the kind of, like, relationship between the gods and human beings and the natural world is, is, like— Okay, let's imagine. Like, draw a circle on a chalk on a chalkboard. Within that circle is all of human nature and the physical world that that human beings inhabit. And on the perimeter of that circle, draw smaller circles. These are the Greek gods. So, in some ways, they're outside of nature, and in some ways, they're inside of nature. And so. Their influence in the world is divine, but it's also, um, like Heidi was saying, it's they're just acting like regular mortals. And so when they are trying to influence, let's say, um, Odysseus or one of his enemies to, to take action in some way or another, they're kind of, they're lobbying in some way, the way that... Um, we would lobby a powerful politician. They would lobby, they would make arguments, and they would try sometimes to physically influence by giving um, a character in the book strength or by depleting his strength, especially on the battlefield. But like, where their power begins and ends is that is murky, murky territory. <laughs> and I think even with regards to, it seems like there is this kind of, ultimate power that lies even above Zeus, Mm -hmm. which is the power of fate or the fates, Uh and even the fates relationship to what actually happens in the world, even that's murky. Whereas I think Christians would say God's ultimate will in the world, according to traditional orthodoxy, God's ultimate will in the world gets done. Now, how it gets done that can be kind of murky, but ultimately gets done. And I think even in Greek mythology, in some ways you can say that what the fates decree gets done,
1: eh, but it seems like maybe
2: even it's malleable by Zeus and by human beings.
1: Sure. Well, and to add to that, Tim, also that the Christ, Christian theology says that God's will is done and that it is ultimately for our good, whether we can see it or not. Yeah. Right? for his glory and for our good. That's Christian theology. That is not at all Greek theology. Right. That's, like you could, the, the gods could make a decision. It could be very, very bad for you for all of eternity and, and the end of your life and the gods don't care. And so think an analogy would be, think of like the coolest kids that you knew in high school that you were afraid of <laughs> and endue them with unfathomable power. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is relationship with the Greek gods. So, that is... That sounds healthy. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's terrifying. Chaos undergirds the Greek way of seeing the world from human perspective. So the best you could do is placate the gods, have a protector in the gods, try to get the gods on your side. And the gods aren't me, they're just kind of careless about human emotions and experiences and relationships because they live forever. And so, you know, you have, there's, there's a, there's a conversation Odysseus has with Athena uh, and he, when he says, where have you been for 10 years, I have been praying to you. Mm. And she's like, oh, well, well, anyway, I'm here now, right? (laughs) So that's, there. There, that's here in this book that there is a carelessness that divinity has towards the vulnerability of humanity, but they don't really dislike us unless we've made them mad somehow. So that what they is dislike
0: compl- is each other. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And we become pawns in the game. And I think that that is a terrible way to live a human life, but a really good way to tell a story. So <laughs> this makes the story really cool.
0: Well. One of the things that I was struck by in rereading these um, first two books for the... I don't, I don't even know how many times I've read them. But I was mm-hmm. struck by the number of times that we get the, the I guess, the um, simile, I guess, godlike. And how much it matters when characters recognize that someone is a god. That is kind of the defining characteristic of Telemachus in these first two books, right? That he recognizes who Athena is when she comes to him as Mente's. Mentes mm-hmm. whatever and then repeatedly we get this this um the simile of people are godlike or they're doing godlike things um we even get right after um, right after Telemachus recognizes that um that Mentes is actually Athena you know it says that she goes off godlike and it's this very you know poignant moment but then the very next uh, set of lines um, I think it's a new paragraph, break in this translation. Um, he also rec- he also it also says that that Penelope was doing something that was godlike. Um, and so there's this. There seems to be even in that, even in that simile and that comparison, there there seems to be this tension between um, the gods, rev- the the question of whether the gods are going to actually reveal themselves to men, and and whether someone is has the has eyes to to see the gods when they come and, and the the degree to which men can be like the gods, Um, which of course in Christian theology, we have the incarnation. That's why the incarnation was such a revolutionary concept, (laughs) right? Because the Greek gods were not, I mean, they might become, they might come down disguised as men. They were not going to become men, right? They weren't actually going to, you know, I think it wasn't going to stay Mentees. She gets out of there as fast as she can, in fact. Um, but I'm, I was just fascinated by that that, that that sort of tension right off the bat between um, the ability to see, uh, b- where certain characters can see that the gods are there, and then this question of the degree to which men can be godlike. That's there right away in book one.
2: Yeah. Um, go ahead, Tim. And there's this question about whether or not Telemachus, son of Odysseus, Whether or not his ability to recognize that he's speaking to Athena is because of all of the people sitting at the banquet table, he is the one who practices hospitality to Athena when she's in disguise, which is, we'll find out in this book, hospitality is
1: everything a
2: a vital virtue for the Greeks. Yes. And all of these, the suitors to Penelope who are sitting around drinking Odysseus's wine, slaughtering his animals for the feast none of them take any notice at all. But Telemachus, we know that he's immature in some ways, but we see on the first pages of the Odyssey that he practices hospitality. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that Homer overtly says, and that's what enabled him to see Athena, but I, I, I got the sense that Telemachus's eyes in some ways were kind of Opened and by the end of the conversation, he recognizes, he thinks, Oh, I think I was speaking to Athena just there.
1: Right, which I think you're exactly right. And that goes back to what David was just saying about the ability to identify with the gods, has a lot to do with godlikeness, right? With Because he's paying attention, because uh-huh. he's practicing this virtue of xenia or hospitality, the guest host relationship he is the one that then is given eyes to behold divinity so that then he can receive help. Hmm. Well, so I'm super
0: fascinated by the concept of revelation in in the Odyssey, like Hmm. uh, the way people, the, the degree to which the gods reveal themselves or reveal truth to people. And then the degree to which people have their own agency, because I think on the one hand, yeah, Athena probably reveals herself bit by bit to, to Telemachus to the point that he's able to recognize her. But then the book also uses this epithet for Telemachus a lot here in this Telemachy, and the epithet is thoughtful, mm-hmm. and that's the uh, my understanding is that's a a Greek word, which is um, pep, pepnumenos, um, mm. which is which is apparently the idea that. Um, <sighs> Uh, it's sound understanding or something like that? Uh, I think is what the word means. But but what I think is happening here in the in the in the Telemachus in in the Telemachy in general is that Telemachus is sort of I, I did a talk on this and I what I call it was like becoming pepnumenos He's bec- he's growing in sound understanding as it as it goes. And so the question is, to what degree is that because she reveals things to him, and what deg- and to what degree is it that he is like his father Odysseus? Yes like, yeah. what is already sort of innate in him what of what sound understanding is sort of there because of who his father is and what is there because of who his because of what the gods revealed to him and, right. goes, and that's another tension that's just throughout this this entire entire epic poem go ahead, Heidi mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yes, I just that's exactly right telemachus uh, excuse me telemachus is he's a young man as you both said a bit immature in some ways, but he must become a man because his, his family, his home is in crisis right now. Its right. mother is besieged by suitors and it's coming to a point that she must make a decision. She must either marry again because her husband is dead or she, she must find a way to rise up against these suitors, but she is helpless. And she's bound by conflicting Vows here. She is married, so if her husband is alive, it would be wrong for her to get married again. Obviously, if her husband is dead, it would be wrong for her to stay single, according to the customs of the time. And now the suitors are getting restless. They're threatening her. So this isn't just things going on in in normal time. This isn't just business as usual. This <laughs> is a crisis, and it is yeah. on Telemachus. He is the one who must act, but he's only a young man and he doesn't doesn't know what to do. And fatherlessness is a very big deal in this poem. And so he is without a man to teach him how to be a man. And so everything is in crisis and he's aware of that. And then along comes Athena to tell him about the crisis, right? She's basically narrating to him in this first speech. Here's why you are in crisis. Mm.
0: Well, it says... What if she said to him, you must not stick to childhood. You're no longer just a little boy. That's right. And she says, I see, this is line 301 in book one. I see how big and tall you are. Be brave and win yourself a lasting name.
1: That's right.
0: And that seems to set off the action of, of the Telemachy. You know, that, I think mm-hmm. that moment there is, uh, and it says Telemachus is brooding on her words, which I love. <laughs> I love that, that the idea that he's brooding on the words. But it's great for a teenager, right? Um. <laughs> And then she's, and he says to her, you were kind to give me fatherly advice. And mm-hmm. I just, I, th- I find that, that really awesome, poignant. Right? Yeah, because yes. you know, he do, as you said, he doesn't have a father. And there's that bit where he says, I, I think one of the most important lines in all of the Tulema where he says, I don't know how to fight a battle. No one taught me how to fight a battle. Right. Yeah, I think it might be in book two. Because um, he, you know, he's, he's like, I don't have the training. Right. And um, in Greek, the Greek culture... You know, I think the boys stayed with their moms till they were five, something like that. They did barely even saw their fathers, you know, very sort of, very, very rarely, I think. And then after they turned five or whatever the age was, they'd be given to the men and the men would then train them how to be soldiers, how to be rulers, how to be a king, you know, what depending on what their role was. But that portion of his life was never, never occurred. So he spent his entire life being the women, so to speak, which, you know, I'm sure that was fine. (laughs) Uh, But that doesn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't train him to do the things that he didn't have the training to do the things that he needed to do to know how to take action. And so the whole, these first two books are about him not knowing what action to take, not knowing what to do. He keeps saying, I I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do this. Every time Mm -hmm. someone says something to him, his response is, yeah, but how? I, right. I No one has trained me to do that. And so when she says to him, she speaks to him and he says, thank you for giving me this fatherly advice. You know, there, that's so poignant because he's, he is sort of, it must've been like therapeutic for him. You know, he's having, right. he's admitting sort of out loud what the, what the problem is. This The sort of yeah. central conflict of the book is that this kid early on anyway, is this kid is in trouble because he didn't have a father to, to help keep him out of trouble or show how to, to survive. I mean that's sort of the central crux of things, and that makes it so po- both poignant and um, uh, interesting as the conflict of the story. Tim, were you going to say something?
2: I or, was going gonna... to. Heidi. It might have been Heidi.
1: I do have Heidi. something to say, but Tim, say I want it. you to go.
2: <laughs> no, because I'm going to. I to. I'm going to pull us back to kind of like the situation with the suitors a little bit. So. It's, okay. It's, no. Then I do have something
1: it. to say. So, I think what you're saying, David, is super important. And this is why I love the Odyssey. This is why I love it so, so, so much is because it is an epic. So it has this epic scale to it. It's about nations. It's about universal things. It's about the gods. But at the same time, it's about a fatherless boy who doesn't know what to do, right? Like this is so human. And- Mm. In spite of its scale, or maybe even because of its scale, right? So much is on the shoulders of this young man who's just doesn't know what to do because he doesn't have a dad and he longs for that. And so this... What you just said, this, this combination of these, these very human questions of personal agency, of innate ability, of the intervention of the divine, and of the importance of an education or training, like all these things intersect in Telemachus in just book one of the Odyssey within just a few masterfully written lines of poetry. Hmm. So everything matters in this poem. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway Tim go ahead and let's talk about the suitors. Well I
2: I was thinking yesterday in preparation for the podcast like what are the things that I wish that I had known better before reading the Odyssey for the first time and the kind of the offense of the suitors was one thing the other thing which hopefully we'll talk about is while the allusions to Agamemnon in these mm-hmm. first two books, which I think we will talk about. So I, I was just trying to think about what it would like the offense of the suitors, what that would feel, what word picture or what metaphor or what comparison would work for us today. And I think the thing to do is like imagine a family that you know in which the father is in military service and imagine that he has been called away to afghanistan and he's been stationed there for a very long time and it's likely that he's alive but he's been lost but we still believe that he's alive what was did i just hear a song <laughs> something just started playing I, on were you my computer something
0: just started playing on my computer all on its own
2: Um, Okay, and so now imagine like that all of the kind of like single men from this town start hanging out with the warrior who's overseas, just start hanging out at his house with his hot wife and his like whatever, 15-year-old son. He's probably even younger than that. And not only that, like, so that's like just offensive To begin with, and you get something's like definitely wrong there, but then they start using. um, They don't just start using his house, but they also start eating his food, and they start drinking his wine, and not and not just a little bit, not just a little bit, but like abusing it. And this is the kicker for me: they also now have access to his bank account. Because it's easy to think like, well, Odysseus' real wealth was stored away somewhere in gold in some vault somewhere. And no, his wealth is his livestock and his gardens. And so they're eating away in kind of like my modern retelling, they're eating away at his bank account also. Okay, so even that is not really even a fair comparison because at least in that situation, Penelope hopefully would have recourse. She could even like, go to the police, this third-party intercessor, and say, hey, listen, these guys will not leave my house. They're playing video games on the couch. They're drinking my husband's you know, wine that he stored up. She doesn't even really have recourse to that because the city elders in Ethica are just not doing anything. It's like she's placed a call to the police or the police kind of know about the situation and they're just not doing anything. So she is in an extremely fragile, tenuous situation. Her only real hope is her son, who, as we've discussed, is just not prepared right now to go to battle with these guys. He's not equipped. He's not trained. So the chaos of which Heidi spoke is... It's, it's, it's really awful. And, yeah. I, and I, if you're a first time reader, I just didn't realize kind of like the gravity of the situation the first time I read it until maybe like the second or third reading. I was like, oh man, this is terrible. This is just terrible.
0: Yeah. And I think that what gets lost is that the only option is for Telemachus is to do something. Like that's, that's the right. only yes. thing. I mean, instead yep. of saving, save Odysseus, obviously, coming home. Yeah. Um, and, but, and even then, who knows what he's going to be able to do. But so Telemachus is the hope. He is the only hope, right? He kind of, he, 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 he's, uh, Princess Leia would send her message to him, right? He's the only right. one that can solve the problem. <laughs> and that's why Athena has to go to him, you know, to, to empower him. And he doesn't know how to take action. He knows he has to do something at the beginning of the book, that's, that's one of the things I noticed this time is he, he's aware that it's kind of falling on him uh-huh. over the years. That's become more clear to him, but he doesn't have any clue how to take action. He doesn't know what to do. And there's this sort of hopelessness in him. Um, that is really, um, you, you see even, I think, I think you see the hopelessness in how Penelope responds to him too. She, she senses that, that hopelessness in him. And she, you can, say, you know, she's, there's several references to her praying for him and her watching him mm. and, her, and the way that she's paying attention to him. And that, that makes it that hopelessness sort of that much more poignant to me.
1: Right. Well, and I think it's it's worth pointing out that the suitors are mostly young men whose fathers also have been away at war in Troy. And so we have not just Telemachus as a fatherless young man, but the suitors as well. And it's, so this this the Telemachy and the later half of of the book of of the Odyssey kind of explore that. What does it mean to be? Fatherless, um, to be without the generation that has gone before, and so of course there's also some allegorical significance to that as well. And speaking about societies, but this idea of of these young men growing up in a fatherless their their dads are away fighting at Troy, and so they don't know how to be men, and the suitors. Degenerate, They degrade themselves. But Telemachus is constantly looking up. Like he is Odysseus' son and he has a good mother. And so he is a young man who wants to become like his father, but he doesn't know his father. And so that fatherlessness, that void of leadership is explored in various ways in the Odyssey. Hmm.
0: Um, so when I was prepping for my talk that I gave on, uh, that focused a lot on the Telemachia, I, I was thinking a lot about the quote um from C.S. Lewis where he talks about how we kind of operate as if the world is our nursery and how we have to get out of the nursery. And yeah. that's how I was kind of thinking about both Telemachus and the suitors are just operating or have been operating for a long time as if the, the world is sort of their nursery, right? And they have mm-hmm. to they have to get kicked out of it and, and the in and some ways, you know, Telemachus is is lucky because, you know, could he have become like the suitors if things had been different and that it happened to somebody else. That's that's one of the mm-hmm. things that I think is interesting. Like it, what is innate in him and then what is circumstantial, you know? Yeah. That's a, I think All that's right. a really like what is fate, <laughs> I guess is another way of putting it. And what is um I guess, you know, I guess like I said, circumstantial. What what is because of the the um the accidents that happen along the way? Um and what what are the gods controlling and, and how much does that determine who we become? I think that's right. a big well, part and, of this book. Um,
1: Tim pointed out earlier this this idea of hospitality. And and that is so important. And you could spend again a hundred years just talking about this concept within the Odyssey. Everywhere Odysseus goes, everywhere Telemachus, everybody is encountering than either the giving of or the receiving of the guest host relationship, which was something that, that was prescribed. And so one thing that we see, the difference between Telemachus and the suitors in book one right away is the suitors are practicing their bad guests Mm. They are stealing. They are plundering a better man than them. That's brought up over and over and over again. Odysseus is better than you, and you are plundering his household, sleeping with his servant girls, and after his wife. Right? And so, but there are. There was a prescribed tradition of being a guest. This is how you be a guest in someone's home. They didn't have hotels back then. So if you traveled, you went to someone who is on about the same economic status as you or if you're a poor person, you went to a poor person's house. If you were a a rich man, you went to a rich man's house and you knock on the door and then they greet you in a very prescribed traditional way. They don't ask your name until you have eaten, then they invite you to tell their your story. So there's- Just think
0: of the Greek version of Downton Abbey.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that is... And here's, here's the thing about... This goes to what you were saying, David. Even in a fatherless society, when men go off to war, because they did in every generation, this isn't new. The point yeah, was yeah. you could still learn how to be a man if you follow the prescribed traditions.
0: Yeah. There were patterns for how you did things. Yes. And, and at the, the suitors, beginning of the Odyssey, those patterns have been
1: abandoned. Exactly, by a large number of men. But Telemachus keeps them, right? He greets the stranger. He invites the stranger in. And because of that, Athena reveals herself and gives him this fatherly advice. She fills that void because he kept the tradition.
0: And there's even this, you know, it even says that she, um, oh, shoot, where is it? it might be in book two though. But it says that she pours a heavenly grace upon him.
1: Mm-hmm yes
0: because of you know there's something there's something kind of old testament about it right the god Mm -hmm. the gods come down she comes down in in disguise and because of the way he responds to her she pours out a heavenly grace upon him you know right
1: um, we would call christians would call it sacramental right but of course the greeks didn't have that same exact word but it's the same idea that the tradition does something to us it matters a lot and It's And that is the thing that raises young men in the absence of their fathers. And when you abandon that, there are consequences to that. But Telemachus rises to it when given the opportunity.
2: What do you make of, I think it's late in book one, Penelope's response when Telemachus kind of gets a little bit sharp with her and is like, mother, go up to your room. Do you remember the section that I'm talking about?
1: Yes. And she, I am going to push back on that a little. I don't know. Maybe that's sharp, but maybe it's just him finally acting like a young man. <laughs> Wait, do you know what well, line this is at the question. end of book
0: one? You must not criticize the loyal bard for singing as he pleases. Yes. So that's three, around 345. It's on page
1: 166.
2: After that, he
1: tells... Oh, it does tells- say sullen in this translation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Anyway, go ahead, Tim. So
2: I, m- my question is about Penelope's response. Again, I don't have the text in front of me, but Penelope's response is that she kind of goes with what Telemachus wants. And I I don't know enough about Here's how I read it and tell me if you agree or disagree. I read it as Penelope saying, "Oh, my son is standing up." And he like this is a good sign. And even though it reads as a little bit disrespectful for a young man to say to his mother, I'm going to go along with it. Penelope's going to go along with it because he is um, exerting himself mm-hmm. as a young man. And I want to reward that. Mm-hmm. Is that how you guys read it? Or I, yes. I-, I just don't know enough about kind of like the, what what the domestic expectations would be like in that time in Greek culture, such that would it even be read as disrespectful for a man, uh, for a young man of Telemachus's age, to speak that way to his mother, or would that just be considered? Oh no, that's acceptable.
1: So I, this is where I just so wish, I I just so so wish I could read Greek because this. I think that this translation presents this interaction rather negatively towards Telemachus. Calls him sullen, um, and then in line three sixty 360 and three sixty one, it says she went back to her room and took her son's uneasy words to heart. So, like I said, I usually read Fitzgerald, and I know for a fact that he he translates it. Penelope looked at Telemachus in wonder, and but this says startled. And so I wish I could read That's Greek more on my vague, own. yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And so I, like I said, I really wish I could read Greek because that I've always interpreted this interaction very positively because of the tra- the translation I usually read, as if he's saying, "No, son, no, mom, like I've got this. I'm actually thinking through this. You can trust me." And she. And she goes upstairs in wonder at his maturity. But I don't think the translation presents this interaction positively much at all. I,
0: I think it's purposefully sort of less decisive in than the how it Yeah. Because so I, in my notes, I, I wrote, is, does this mean that she is, it startled her as in it startles her into listening to him, or it startles her as in she's, she is struck by it? Because because it's something how, that he's never done before? Or is she startled because of the tone of his speaking? She's upset with it. Like I think the ambiguity there is... My, I wish we could ask Emily Wilson this. We should make, keep a list of things to ask her. Right? Yeah. Like, is, so who wants to write this one down, right? I got um, it. Yeah. Is, uh, is, is, this, is this meant to be ambiguous on purpose so that the reader has to kind of wrestle with it? I mm-hmm. think in some ways, having to wrestle with it adds some depth to it. Because mm-hmm. then you can spend the rest of the book and the rest of their interactions kind of working that out.
1: Right. Yes.
0: And I do think it's, I, I mean, I i do think it's telling that she goes upstairs with her slaves and it says we, that she wept for her dear Odysseus until Athena gave her eyes sweet sleep. Um, because you could read that either she's not worried about Telemachus at this point, she's thinking about Odysseus, or she's thinking about Odysseus because of Telemachus's flaws or failings to this point or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot right. of there's a lot of ways you could read it. But right. I do love that he says the poets are not to blame for how things are, Zeus, is, which of course the poet would include in a poem.
1: <laughs> so meta. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course the character is gonna blame the gods and not the poets.
1: Right.
2: right. Hey you guys before we conclude, can we talk a little bit about Agamemnon and why there's so many allusions to the story of Agamemnon in these first couple of chapters?
1: Yes. Great idea. Go.
2: The myth, help me with the, the myth. The story, um, is that Agamemnon was one of the great Greek warriors that went to Troy before, gosh, I'm doing this from memory, which is a very frail read. Um, he, before leaving for Troy, the, the seas were tumultuous and they, ne- they needed to sail. And so Agamemnon offers his daughter as a sacrifice to the gods and kills her and then gets um, calm enough seas to sail to Troy. When he returns, he's returning to Clytemnestra, his wife, who has taken a lover, uh, Agisthus. Yep, Agisthus. Agisthus. Mm-hmm. And he returns, uh, Agamemnon returns with the plunder of his war in the person of um, Cassandra, who has become a, a literary trope as a prophetess who speaks the truth and who's never listened to. Uh, Agisthus, the lover of Clytemnestra, kills Agamemnon. And that is the first in, um, there's a famous trilogy of plays. That's the first of the trilogy of plays. And there's kind of like a revenge cycle that follows after that. So that's the story of Agamemnon and the gods repeatedly make reference to it in these first couple of chapters. I think that the reason they make so many references to the story of Agamemnon is because it's almost the mirror opposite story of what we're hoping for in a return from um, Odysseus.
1: Right. Right. So you're, the, the story you said is right. It's very unclear whether Homer had had access to the Iphigenia plot plot line. That's the daughter of um, Agamemnon who was sacrificed for favorable winds to get to Troy. Mm. So um, it's, there's nothing scholars debate about this often. If you're interested in minutiae having to do with the epics, this is an interesting plot line to to look at because if Homer didn't know about Iphigenia, then it becomes even more poignant. I think it works better because then what you're saying is while Agamemnon and Odysseus were off at war, their wives behaved very differently. Mm. Because as far as, as Clytemnestra is concerned, she doesn't have anything to revenge on her husband because, in, in, with, if you add Iphigenia in and say that he killed Iphigenia, then, then you have Clytemnestra who's rightfully angry at her husband and takes a lover right. because of that, right? So right. if Homer didn't know about that and we don't have any evidence that he did, it's actually a later myth. So he probably didn't. So what you have then is two wives at home, both, as far as we know, faithful up to that point. And then, in the absence of Odysseus and Agamemnon, Clytemnestra takes a lover, but Penelope is faithful. And then when Agamemnon gets home, the, his wife and her lover conspire to murder him. Make, then, make, then Orestes is obligated to revenge his father by killing his mother. And that's the plot of, you know, like you said, this revenge trilogy of the other play. But it's very relevant to this story because of, I mean, that's, that's what Odysseus and Penelope and Telemachus could become, right? That's the cautionary tale that's being told over and over and over again, like you said, throughout the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, hey, hang in there, Penelope. Hang in there, Telemachus. We know he's been gone for 10 years. We know you've been waiting and you don't know if he's alive or dead, but don't become like Clytemnestra and Orestes.
2: Heidi, that's so, that's so helpful because when, when you read like Aeschylus' play, Agamemnon, and mm-hmm. Agamemnon is killed by Clytemnestra's boyfriend, mm-hmm. It's disgusting and it's horrible, but you're kind of like, but he did kill his daughter. I mean, he kind of feels like he had it come into him. So if Homer doesn't have access to that part of the story, then Mm -hmm. yeah. And he probably
1: didn't. That was probably a later... All the evidence seems to point that that was a later addition to that myth.
2: Wow. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. And yeah, what and even starker contrast of um, virtuous Penelope, faithful and loving, Clytemnestra without cause, having taken a lover who murders her returning warrior husband.
1: With her full knowledge. They did it together. Right. Which then ruins Orestes' life. Then he is now doomed because he has to kill his own mom to avenge his father.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I was struck by in book two is how often the suitors keep telling Penelope and Telemachus, look, this is just how it's going to be. This is the fates. This, the, it's got nothing to do with what decisions you make. They say something like, um, if she wants to go on hurting us, her plans are contrary to destiny. Um, as she's, Uh, there's another one, I can't find it. But, you know, so for them, they're like, this is just the way it's going to be. And, and this, this is they're trying to take kind of the fates into their own hands, much like in the story that you're describing there, the, uh, in the Oristeia, um, where they kind of are taking destiny in their own hands. And that's, and as you said, it's what could have been, right? Um, I, I think that's the way you put it, it's what could have yeah. been with Telemachus and Penelope and Odysseus. But to Penelope and Telemachus are in some ways... You know, Telemachus is sort of seeking out wisdom to guide him. Whereas the suitors and in and as in the case of the, um, what's the first play? Agamemnon? Agam- is Agamemnon yeah, the first one? Yeah. Is Agamemnon. Agamem- as yeah. in as in the Agamemnon play, um the suitors are sort of just directly taking that into their own hands. You know, they have a lack of so much they have lacked so much wisdom. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Penelope in sort of stalling is able to trick them because they 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 have more faith in themselves. And Telemachus and Penelope, like Odysseus does, turn to the gods. You know, Te- Telemachus recognizes his own weakness, whereas the, all these other characters that we're discussing, they, they don't recognize their own weakness. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what sort of preserves, along with the faithfulness of Penelope, sort of preserves Odysseus' home in a way that doesn't happen in Agamemnon's home.
1: Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that Penelope, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman. So, I mean, everybody pays attention to female characters. I'm not saying I do that just because I'm a woman, but (sighs) I, I do like, so I, Penelope is my, my great literary hero and I love Penelope. And this, the, the story of her weaving of the shroud is told three times in the odyssey. Um, and the Odyssey is, you know, there's all these stories. By three, different perspectives, stories, right? three, three different, different perspectives, right? Three different perspectives. And we get the first one. Is it in book one or book two? Is it book book two? I think it's anyway, in book
2: two
0: because the suitors are complaining about it, right?
1: Yes. And yeah, they're saying, right. Antinous is saying to Telemachus, your mom needs to make a choice. She's stalling. This is, you know, we are getting impatient and you should know. You need to, to take care of this. And then he complaining about Penelope tells Telemachus back the story of how Penelope has tricked them by telling them that she wants to weave She cannot choose a husband until she has woven a burial shroud for her ailing father-in-law, who's not yet dead, um, Laertes. And so she says, please give me time to, to weave this beautiful shroud for him. And they even they are moved by this very human the very human pathos of this question. I want to make something. They, they, they say they're moved in their hearts. They felt pity for her. And so she works on this every day for three years. So she weaves this beautiful shroud. And so she'd weave during the day. And then at night, she would sneak down to the loom and unravel all of her work so that it was never finished so that she could put them off. So she used... She, she participated then in her own salvation in this, right? She came up with a way, she's often called wise Penelope or my favorite adjective for her, circumspect. I love that adjective, circumspect Penelope, that she, she, is, she realizes the danger she's in and she wants to keep her womanliness. Um, so she chooses a womanly art to then wisely trick the suitors uh, so that she does not have to marry again. And I just I love that story. And it's told three different times from three different perspectives, as you pointed out, David, which shows her wisdom and the fact that she has agency and that she's found a way to take action on her own behalf to protect her and her land and her son. Um, just as everybody, she's not just blindly sitting around waiting, she's participating.
0: She's, in fact, yeah, she... <laughs> Unlike Selemachus, she's the one who does, who has been taking action. She's yes. been kind of buying biding time, buying time. What's the word? Bought both. But you
1: yep.
0: Yep. also can buy time though, right? You
1: can. I'm still and she is. Although doing not that. in real
0: life. <laughs> <laughs> Only metaphorically. Um fair. Yeah, and and so you mentioned the idea of um circumspect, because mm-hmm. the suitors call her cunning in the sort yes. of like they kind of spit the word right. out, right? And right. then but then in oh, like I said in book one, Telemachus, you know, um, uh, I guess not Telemachus. Actually, the narrator says that she's standing there listening to the song, being godlike. You know, she's mm-hmm. standing next to the pillar, holding a gauzy veil before her face, godlike, listening to the to the marvelous song. Right before um, she says, tells them to stop. And I always wonder, like, when she, in those moments, is she playing everybody? Mm-hmm. Like, she maybe is complaining about the song. But is she? This is why I. This is why I don't know that she's that upset with Telemachus, and that because I think in some ways she she could be manipulating the situation by saying just the right thing to give him the opportunity to say what he needs to say. So I I think there's a lot of gray area in terms of um, the way that she is circumspect or cunning or or godlike. And I think that the great thing is the, the the poem itself doesn't necessarily. I mean, it kind of allows our imaginations to play with how much she knows and how much she knows is what's going to happen. I think yeah. it's telling when the book uses a word like godlike, especially at least, you know, I'd like to know how often that's an Emily Wilson choice and how often it's in the original Greek that that, that word godlike is used. But Penelope is definitely associated with Athena here yes. in the first two books. And I, I don't think that that's an accident.
1: <laughs> well, and Homer wants us to know right away, she's worthy of her husband.
0: Right. Right, yeah, yeah.
1: In contrast to, as Tim pointed out, Clytemnestra.
0: And let's be, I mean, Penelope is just a better name than Clytemnestra too. Like, Clytemnestra <laughs> just sounds devious.
1: Right. No offense to any Clytemnestras
0: who are listening. Well,
1: and they're cousins, Clytemnestra and Penelope. And oh, Penelope, that's right. Yes, they are. and um, And they're also related to Helen, and in fact, there's another myth that says Odysseus was given the choice between Clytemnestra, Penelope, and Helen of Troy as a wife. And he saw how much Helen's beauty excelled Penelope's, but he saw how foolish Clytemnestra was, and, how, and so he chose Penelope from the three of them.
2: Nice choice. Yep. Very nice choice.
1: Over beauty and I think that's an important addition. It's not in the Odyssey. it's another myth, but it is an important thing to understand. Odysseus and Penelope loved each other from the beginning and were well matched from the beginning. He chose to marry her over the most beautiful woman in the world, the daughter of Zeus, because he saw her wisdom.
0: Hmm. How do you I think one this idea of like you you see something in someone is something hmm. that that comes up a lot, even in the first couple books, but throughout huh. the whole poem. Like the idea that someone someone recognizes some virtue or vice in another character. And like, you see that beyond just the gods, you'll see Odysseus recognize things. You see, I mean, it talks about Ploemax's eyes being opened up and he sees who Mente's is. And it says that Penelope recognizes different things. And then you've got, I mean, then that seems to be such a crucial thing. So I guess my question is, or at least something to look out for is how, how does that happen? Like, how is it that someone's eyes are opened? Is it, is it again, is it something innate within the character that allows them to see the other person for what they are or perhaps aren't? Or is it the, are the gods opening their eyes or how does that, how does that happen? Because I mean, that's a big part of Odysseus's wisdom and Penelope's wisdom, as you're saying. Um, and that that's something that's lacking in other people because the suitors, for example, they don't, their eyes are not open to who people really are. Um, so I'm just fascinated by by that sort of little bit of characterization, right. I guess, in a, in a poem. And it's amazing that this is so consistent given the way that it was passed down.
1: <laughs> right. Well, and that's a great question. I've never thought of that in the context of the Odyssey before, but it is important, David, because of how many things are hidden and then... As you pointed out have to be revealed, revealed you said yeah. you are you are interested in revelation and the Odyssey it's not just the nature of the gods but the nature of there's so many disguises right there's so many people who are who are hidden whether it's the gods or the men and in order and then they must the truth must be revealed and mm. so that question of how and you know again that comes up with Penelope does Penelope know later that the beggar is Odysseus and so that is a a it's a very big thing in the Odyssey. Is what, when is it going to come into light and who recognizes it first? Mm. Mm.
0: Tim, we need to wrap this up here soon, but do you have any, any final thoughts you'd like to
2: add?
1: I, we just got I, I started.
2: I know. We did get started. <laughs> it's, been an, it's been an hour. <laughs> I would like to do a little bit of just a very brief nerd moment about the Odyssey. Um, Wait, what's the whole so, show been so far? <laughs> But you know how we talk about. I think we are pretty good at keeping the focus on, on the text, and not getting into trivia about whether or not Homer was one person or ten. You know, like we don't dwell a lot on that on close reads, and I'm I'm very glad about that. This is like an exception. There's this kind of question in the 19th century about. Is Homer's story just a story that he made up that has no bearing whatsoever on, you know, like on real history or anything like that? And there was a a German businessman in the late 1800s, and the German businessman um, was sure that the Odyssey was something close to real history. I'm trying to remember the name of the. I think Schleimann was the name of the German businessman. Very wealthy. And he funded from his own wealth an expedition to go find the city of Troy. And he apparently found the city of Troy. And he even, though this is very disputed historically now, uh, found, I think, the burial mask of Agamemnon, this kind of gold... This thin gold kind of plate that would have been placed in theory over Agamemnon's face after his death. And so, since he funded that trip and supposedly found what looks like the city of Troy, um, kind of historical and literary criticism has kind of come to acknowledge the Odyssey is probably not just, and the Iliad also, not just a fanciful retelling of um just you know purely from homer's mind but in some ways there, there maybe there was a real odysseus maybe there was a real penelope obviously as we read the story and we read about the kind of fantastical adventures of the cyclops and Psylla and charybdis there are going to be things that we say like yeah i don't think there was a one-eyed monster living alone on an island you know eating men i don't think that was true but um I think there's cause to believe that the Odyssey has some, some tether to real events of some sort. I just think that's really interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah.
0: Mm. Well. <laughs> <laughs> David? I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I'm trying to think of if there's a, if there's a, Tie in for the next episode, but I think we probably can can
2: wrap it up here um, because David, we're going to have a lot to is, talk about in three and four. This is a, this will be the longest book that we've done. Excuse me, that's not the right way to say it. This will be the longest series that we've done in three years of close reads. Will it not? Yeah, it's been four years, but yeah. Um, do you have any expectations that will kind of like vary our our habits? will we do something dip- different during this series than we've done in the past?
0: Well, we are probably going to rotate some people in and out just because it's hard for people to commit to every week over the course of 12 weeks. Right. They so hear from Matt Bianco or my dad or a couple of the people like that, just dropping in. Um, as far as we're going to do mostly two books at a time, but there are two instances where we'll do either four or five because of either shorter books or because of the section that it is is best discussed together. Mm. Um, we may discuss uh, slightly more history than than normal. Um, I've got a couple of resources I'm working on with some people to help clarify some things because there is things like, for example, that Homer wrote, or at least told it in dactylic hexameter. That's some that's the the linguistic form that that is used, and so I've got something that I'm hoping to be able to share uh, that kind of explains that. So. I I'm kind of waiting to, as far as whether we're going to change our habits other than those things that I'm listing there. Um, it'll depend a little bit on where we go. I mean, we could talk yeah. about you know a million things in this book, but we only have an hour or an hour and 15 minutes each week. So um, I'm kind of holding my breath as far as saying anything too much because I want to see how things shape up. But did you have something in mind?
2: No, I, I mean, <laughs> I would love to talk to Emily Wilson um, well, we'll work on that. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a goal. Yeah. We're going to work on and that. And I also thought, I know how much your dad loves this book. And I thought, I hope he gets to chime in on those sections that he finds. Oh, yeah. That's going to be up to him. <laughs> yeah. Because he's busy. Um,
0: the next two weeks, he's busy with apprenticeship stuff. But um, that's, that's, I mean, if he wants to come on, he, he's welcome to come on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, yes. I mean, I, I want to keep my job. So. <laughs>
1: We all want that too David.
0: Yes, yes. Most days I want to keep my job. <laughs> <laughs> um all right Heidi uh quick final thought before we go.
1: Um pay attention to stories within stories in this in this book. The the chronology is a little bit tricky as you pointed out. Um at the beginning so I'm sure we'll talk about that but we are starting as you said also in media race, which means right in the middle of things. And we are, we're in the middle of the crisis. And we've already seen a couple people telling some stories, Penelope uh, and the loom is a story within a story. We also had um, Agamemnon and and Clytemnestra. But whenever you see that as you're reading, uh, pay attention because those stories are always there for a reason and they go kind of to the heart of what's going on. Mm.
0: Well, uh, as always, you can join the conversation on the Facebook group. Again, you can just search on Facebook for the Close Reads podcast discussion group. Um, if you're already in there, please you know, post your questions, post your conversation. We want to hear from people. Um, you can follow us at Close to Reads Pods on, uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, and we've been doing some giveaways on Instagram. So if you want to follow us over there, you can. And again, the email is closereads.substack, close S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, at... Sorry, closestoreads.substack.com is where you can sign up for the email newsletter that's going to go out. Um, I've got a few resources I'll be sending out later this week. And then of course, we will also have our Patreon bonus episode coming later this week. This week, um, Heidi and Tim and I will be discussing an Agatha Christie short story called Witness for the Prosecution. And that's going to go out to all of our Patreon... Uh, supporters. So, if you want to learn how you can access that, you can go to patreon.com slash close reads. The first short story that we did on there was on Hemingway's A Clean, Well Lighted Place, and it was one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. So, it was great. <laughs> yeah, we've gotten great feedback on it too. I heard from some people at the conference who were just said it was wonderful. So, um, I, you guys were great on that episode, and I, you know, it, it was super fun. So if you have not heard that yet, um, you can head over to Patreon and, and get access to that, as well as conference talks by you guys and a lot of other stuff. Um, we're sending out some special prizes, uh, or gifts, or whatever, to everybody who has is currently subscribed. All, all the everybody people at any at any tier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're sending out some special <laughs> stuff this week. Uh, as I came into the studio,
1: cool, don't you? Just say that you want to be cool, don't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean I, if you're already signed up and you're then you know you're already getting it, so you don't have to do anything, but we have some stuff we're sending out to people some new uh some new uh swag related stuff, I guess <laughs> uh so be on the lookout for that over the next week or so. as I came into the studio, Jared was busily stuffing envelopes with with stuff, so um. Yeah, there's that coming. Um, Other than that, I think uh, I should let you know the the Daily Poem is on hiatus until August 5th. I needed a break on that to prep for for some things. And so on August 5th, we'll come back with a new run of poems uh, each weekday leading up into the new school year. So thanks to everyone who's been listening to that. But now is a great time to subscribe and to tell your friends to get ready for that. And then coming up on Libromania here soon, we have an episode on the worst poet of all time. That's what he's named. The worst poet of all time. So I've got a conversation coming up with a Scotsman about that guy. Uh, so make sure you subscribe to Libromania uh, too.
1: That sounds cool on a lot of levels, actually. What, everything yeah, I mean, you just said. A Scotsman it, talking about the worst poet ever.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, he literally is the, considered the worst poet of all time. So it's it was um, both a sort of sad and also fun episode to do. <laughs> So that's coming in the next week or so. So be on the lookout for that. All right. With that, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy readings.